Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking with Emily Robertson about her debut YA novel, Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters, a Mythological Retelling. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical Fantasy Falcon series and the upcoming Girl of Fire. Emily has been a bookseller in Little Rock, a newspaper reporter in Vicksburg, a marketing manager in Boston, and a writer in Chapel Hill in Dallas. She graduated from Brown University and has a master's degree in English from the University of Texas at Austin. She now lives in Little Rock, Arkansas with her husband, three sons, and no pets. You can find her on the web on Instagram. There, it's at Robertson Emily M. And she's on Twitter, at Robertson Emily. And it's Robertson, R-O-B-E-R-S-O-N. Before I welcome Emily on the show to discuss her novel, I'd like to share my review of her book, followed by a short author reading, which she'll be doing. In this modern version of the myth of Theseus and Ariadne, Ariadne is a complacent daddy's girl when we first meet her. As her father's favorite, she spared the humiliation her sisters succeed to when they star in their own reality TV show, The Paradoxes. Sure, daddy might have a martini-stocked bar in each room of his fabulous palace, as well as a sacrificial altar for augury in case the mood to sacrifice a dove seizes him. But when your mother is infamous for coupling with a bull while hidden in a wooden cow statue, father looks like the better bet, even if he does have an agenda for everyone. Ariadne also has a special role to play in her family. She's the keeper of the labyrinth which means that every year she leads the chosen Athenians into the labyrinth for their televised demise. Each year, the 14 Athenians come to Crete to be fated, each one sure that he or she will be the one to defeat the Minotaur. And each year, the slaughter is televised to diminishing audience interest. That all changes the year Theseus, the illegitimate son of the king of Athens, arrives in Crete intent on preventing further deaths. Ariadne finds herself attracted to Theseus, a serious and authentic young man who happens to be gorgeous as well. However, their developing romance soon becomes more fodder for the reality show her family stars in, and Ariadne must face some hard truths about her life. Now we're going to have a short reading by the author herself before we start the show. You will have seen them, I suppose. 
the grainy pictures taken with a long telephoto lens. It has been 14 years, but they still shock. She has a face that everyone knows. Beautiful, determinedly blonde, curated, never a hair out of place, the tabloid writers say. In the series of paparazzi shots, she strides across the pasture. No Photoshop, no airbrush, no filters. It is a long walk, and the photographers got her from every angle. As always, she is trim, tanned, and toned, another favorite tabloid description. If her sheet of golden hair and blue eyes are familiar, her expression is not. Usually, her face in pictures is cool and composed, icy. In these, she is ravenous. She never could hide how she felt about that bull. That face alone would have been enough to sell all the magazines in a newsstand, enough to crash any server, even without the wooden cow. But there is a wooden cow, a cowhide-covered box with legs and a head. When the white bull walked out of the sea a few months earlier, people called it a gift from the gods. They said it was a sure sign that Daddy was a good king of Crete, that he still had the favor of the gods. Even after my older brother's murder, our tragedy, that Daddy had been right to go to war with Athens, they called it beautiful. For myself, I don't see what's beautiful about a bull, white or brown. They look like livestock to me, not my type. It was beautiful to my mother. There are lots of theories about my mother and the bull. Some people say Daddy should have sacrificed it instead of keeping it. Daddy thinks that's ridiculous. The gods would not have handed him such a valuable thing, only to ask him to kill it. Other people say it was because my mother was too proud and the gods wanted to take her down a notch. However, she's still proud, even after her abasement. I think it's because the gods are jerks. Whatever the reason, my mother fell in love with a bull, and when the bull didn't return her affection, Daedalus, Daddy's architect, built her the wooden cow and brought it out to the pasture for her. The paparazzi pictures of what happened next were taken from so far away that if you didn't know what you were looking at, you wouldn't know what you were looking at. Unfortunately, I know. Eventually, the bull returned to munching the grass, and my mother went back to the palace. When she returned to the paddock later, Daddy's people checked the trees for paparazzi, so there were no more pictures. No one knows why she stopped going to see the bull. Maybe her infatuation ran its course like an infection. Maybe the gods thought it had gone on long enough. Maybe she got tired of the whole thing. Eventually, life returned to normal, more or less. Mother went back to her royal duties and her social world, and if people moo when her name is mentioned, they do it very quietly, behind closed doors. After a while, the world's attention moved on to the next big scandal. The bull was never the same afterward. It went crazy, charging around, breaking fences, tearing up pastures. Daddy got so irritated that he had Heracles capture it and take it to the mainland. Let it be Athens' problem, Daddy said. Maybe it missed my mother. Who knows? Bulls can't talk. 
My mother can talk, but she never talks about the bull. Daddy blocks access to the sites where the pictures are posted, but it's like the Hydra, always popping up somewhere else. You'd think people would stop caring, but I guess it never gets old. So now Emily's joining us live on New Books Network to talk about her book. And uh, starting off with an obvious question, Comparisons to the Hunger Games, one of my favorite YA books, are inevitable. But tell us a little bit about what makes Ariadne different from Katniss Everdeen. So there are a few things that make her pretty different from Katniss. Um, The first is that Ariadne is much more protected than Katniss. Her life is within a royal palace, essentially, where all of her physical needs are taken care of. Basically, she lives in the lap of luxury. Um, and even though parts of her life are not her favorite, she doesn't really love um, some parts about her role as the keeper of the maze. And also, she really does not enjoy the reality TV elements of her life. She never has to hunt for her own food. She really is able to take care of herself. But I would say the most important difference between Katniss and Ariadne is that at the beginning of the book, Ariadne believes herself to have a very close relationship with her father, which, of course, Katniss had, but she lost her father. Mm -hmm. But Ariadne really believes herself to be protected by her father and that he is an honest broker. And that even, and he feels badly for the things she has to do that she doesn't want to do. So I think that her learning that her father has his own interest and his own agenda is such a big part of her journey. And so that feels really different to me. Yeah. It's a transition from being kind of a little girl to being an adult and, and seeing her family, well, especially her father with new eyes. That's very true. Uh, Gods and Monsters is a YA book, but since it's based on the Greek myth of Ariadne, it includes the genesis of the Minotaur, the half-bull, half-man, who is Ariadne's brother. The Minotaur is the offspring of Ariadne's mother and a white bull. Did you have some scruples about how to handle a topic of bestiality in a YA book? Yes. 100% yes. It was really an interesting problem. I can't, I I mean, it's it's such a struggle because if you look up, like if you, even if you go like to the bullfinches or any mythological book of mythology and you look up the the minotaur, it's like Daedalus built a wooden cow. Like it's right there. (laughs) But then, but it's never really you don't really look at it for very long, right? Like people barely remember that that's part of the myth. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, I actually, what's so interesting is that the first chapter, that first chapter of the book came to me before anything else did. Like it, it, I mean, it appeared like there's sometimes where writing is, is work. And there's sometimes where writing is like some magic. And that felt like magic. Like it just appeared. I didn't know who was talking. I didn't know. I just knew that like, how in the world do people know about that wooden cow? That was the thing. It's like, wait, that's in this myth. It's 3,000 years old. How do people know? Wouldn't that have been like the world's biggest secret? And then that got me thinking about the paparazzi seeing it. And that built the whole world. So then further on, I kept writing and I was thought, well, maybe we'll take this out. 
Because I do, it is kind of a big leap, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's not a thing we really talk about. It's pretty taboo, frankly. Um, But it just felt so important to the story. And I guess my goal with it was to write it in such a way. There's a line where Ariadne says in that first chapter, if you didn't know what you were seeing, you wouldn't know what you were seeing. And I sort of wanted it to have that level because I don't want to, um, to make it to where either kids or adults who aren't really ready to face it are forced to look at it that closely. So when it comes up later in the book, I feel like there's more preparation for it. But yes, it was definitely a a difficult thing to decide to include. And it's totally, it's totally mirroring uh, young adults. One of the sources of greatest anxiety, which is how do your parents appear? Because I know you know, that's something teenagers and young adults go through. You perhaps you're not totally happy with your family of origin and the way right. they behave. Right. And what could be worse? Really? <laughs> right. What could be worse? I love also, I just love the idea that like, that, um, that last line of the first chapter there, there, it's like the hydra. It just keeps reappearing. Like how I was, I was thinking also about like, actually about like Kim Kardashian's kids. Mm-hmm. What would it be like to be Kim Kardashian's kids where she got famous through a tape of herself having, you know, sex with some guy who's long lost to history and to be her kid and be like, Oh my God. It would be totally humiliating. Well, and uh, that kind of answers our next question, which was why is Ariadne initially closer to her father than her mothers and sisters? But um, we can move on to explore that a little bit. Uh, so what traits do her mother and sisters have that Ariadne find upsetting? And how might those traits relate to pressures pace, placed on contemporary young women? I was fascinated by this this question. This question interests me so much. I mean, just in, in life, but then also for the story. In the beginning of the book, Ariadne, who is not sexualized in her family, she isn't. She's allowed to, in some ways, in the world of the book, to continue to be a child in some ways. Because in in this world, to be a woman is to be um, exploited in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so she's allowed to. And she believes herself. She believes that this is a choice that she is making and she believes that it makes her better than her mother and her sisters, her decision to not dress provocatively or, um, or hook up with guys that makes her better. And her father has definitely encouraged that particular belief. He's sort of constantly reaffirming you're the best of the bunch. You're the best of the you're the best of them. Mm-hmm. And I think she believes early in the book for quite a while that her mother and her sisters are choosing to exploit themselves. And essentially that the moment they, you know, put on those dresses that they are choosing everything else. And I feel like one of the things that contemporary girls are really, and women and they're like me sitting here right now in leggings are are dealing with are like, no, you can wear the things that you like, 
even if they are, you know, made of spandex and that that doesn't then thereby mean that everything else that happens to her mother and her sisters is like follows on like the dominoes. Right. You know, yeah. And I think she does not understand for a very long time the ways that they are, their position is equivalent to hers. Um, and that they are making the most interesting thing to me about this family, which Icarus sees clearly, and I know you don't have a question about Icarus, but Icarus sees clearly and no one else does to say, to name it is the ways in which continued existence within the family means you have to do things that you don't want to do, but the rewards are, you know, rewards that you would like. And so I think that she, Ariadne learning, and then of course at the story, you know, part of the fun of writing the story was all of a sudden having Ariadne be forced into that role in a way that she never imagined that she would be. And then what happened? from that and that was very fun to explore right and she developed some sympathy for her sisters at least but listeners will have to read the book to find out exactly more. <laughs> <laughs> so ariadna's father yeah he often refers to the will of the gods and he has priests in constant attendance is the king a religious man the king sees no separation between what he wants and what the gods want. And so I think he absolutely believes in the gods, absolutely believes in the gods, while also believing that they do what he says. So I think that I think he's fully invested in the existence of the gods. However, if like Zeus showed up on the doorstep, I think he might be pretty surprised. Oh, that's funny, because I thought he was cynically exploiting the idea of religion, but it's even more interesting to think that instead of the creator having made man as his mirror, it worked the other way around. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, he. I think he's fully... Um, fully invested in his own narrative. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I mean, that's such an interesting question. Like, is he acting from cynicism or is he acting from a sense of sort of a kind of narcissism? And, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's open to interpretation, but I, I would say that he, that he, that he believes that he fully believes that the God, God punish his enemies. Yes, I could see that. Mm -hmm. He's a somewhat ruthless man, but they're, <laughs> the most ruthless man is the one who believes himself to be righteous. Exactly. Exactly. So Icarus and his father, Dedaleus, are not conniving people without any scruples, the way Ariadne's parents are. Icarus is actually Ariadne's best friend. What does it say about her life that her best friend is Icarus, actually her only friend, for a while? I really love the discomfort in her relationship with Icarus because the thing about them, and this is true in the myth as well, is Icarus, Icarus never chose to come to Crete. His father chose to come to Crete. His mother did not want to go, and Icarus was brought. But he's a prisoner there. Mm -hmm. And so, and Ariadne knows that. 
And she's always known that. But at the same time, he's the only person she can trust. So this person who is forced to serve her family is also the only person she can trust because her role in the family is a secret. And so she really is incapable of having other friendships because she can't um, let her guard down in the way that you would to have other friendships. Um, but I, I also love that there's this honest dishonesty between them. Um, because Icarus most, like he tells her the truth about things to the extent that he thinks she can manage it Mm -hmm. while also being incredibly cynical about his role in the family. And, and he's my, he was, I don't know if you could tell from reading it, but he was the most fun to write. Uh, of anyone. Yeah, he, he certainly had a scathing sense of humor, I think, and he was very individual. And then Theseus, he's very handsome, but he, he's a very different character from Icarus. Well, for one thing, he's the love interest, but his appeal lies beyond his looks. What specific actions and dialogues show that he's different from most of the people Ariadne comes in contact with? I think that Theseus, what I found so fascinating about Theseus was the way that he saw her. Um, through, he seemed to see something in her sort of separate from the outside. Like he seemed less, he's less concerned with the external than anyone else in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, her life is very focused on the external and um, that thought that he's been sort of watching her her whole her whole life really, and then also that Theseus at its core truly believes in something. He's not a cynical person, even though he sometimes lies to get what he wants. And sometimes, I mean, he is he can act when necessary, but he at his core is a person who believes in some sort of greater good, like he wants to help the people of Athens. He wants to help her. And she has just never experienced that in her whole life. And I think that um, is just such a fascinating thing for her to see someone who truly has faith in things larger than himself. Um, And I think that sort of plays through all their different interactions. It's a little hard for her to trust him at first. He seems to be true. Oh yeah. She doesn't trust him at all. (laughs) She can't imagine someone who doesn't have an ulterior motive. And someone so good-looking being interested in her when she makes no effort to present a tempting picture. Those flannel pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) So if Gods and Monsters has a good ending, but it's not necessarily a storybook romance ending, were you tempted to go for the predictable, crowd-pleasing end? So I would say I, so I, the ending took me many times to write. I tried a bunch of different ways and it was trying to square exactly that circle. Like how to, I did in the, on the whole, I stuck with the myth as, you know, as generally received, but there's a few places where I changed it. And it wasn't like I was, you know, it's not a test. I wasn't depending on doing it is exactly the same, Mm -hmm. but I did feel like I wanted each character 
to really grow into where they were supposed to be based on what they wanted and who I felt like they were at their core. And I could not figure out how to get that storybook ending while also giving all the characters the the outcome that I felt that they wanted. And so if you're familiar with the myth, um, I don't want to spoil anything. I will say that if you're familiar with the myth, I did change the ending in some ways, but in other ways, I just really want to be true, wanted to be true to where I felt like Ariadne, this person who'd been so like, I just wanted her to have a chance to soar. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to make sure that the book let her really spread her wings. And so, so that is to say that it took a bunch of versions to get to where it is, but I really feel like it's the right ending. So you've ended that book and it's being published. What are you working on now? I am, uh, work, I'm busily, you know, getting ready for the book to come out, but I'm also working on another myth. Um, I don't want to tell which one, but it is not, it's, it's still the same sort of a world where it's like a modern, sort of a contemporary or slightly ahead of contemporary world retelling a myth. Um, but it is not one of the Cretan ones. So it's a different different myth and I'm having an absolute blast of the time um, and but it's not it's not anywhere near done it's about probably about halfway done okay well we're looking forward to seeing that out on the market and thanks for chatting with us today thanks so much for having me it was delightful thanks for listening to us today on the new books network fantasy and adventure channel I've been talking with Emily Robertson about her WYA novel, Lifestyles of Gods and Monsters. In November, we'll be switching gears and discussing a military sci-fi novel, The Emperor's Fist with Jay Allen. If you enjoy science fiction, be aware that New Books Network has its own dedicated channel for science fiction run by Rob Wolf. I'm your host for the Fantasy Channel. Gabrielle Matthew. I'm the author of the upcoming YA fantasy, Girl of Fire. You can find out more about my work on my website. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more at Gabrielle Author, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. Till next time.